John chapter 20, beginning in verse 19, John, who was at the scene, he remembers the scene, and he writes these words. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Now when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Like frightened deer, like scared rabbits, the disciples bounded from the garden. In their case, it was the Garden of Gethsemane. They were scurrying for their very lives. All of these men, Jesus' men, had succumbed to fear that night. They all had taken flight. None of them had the courage to stand by Jesus in the face of the angry mob from the temple. As one author puts it, the only thing that was moving faster than their feet was their pulse rate. Words of loyalty and commitment were left behind in a cloud of dust. But as we learned last week, all of the disciples, except Judas, came back. Every one of them returned. And by the time we get to Sunday evening, all 11 disciples had wandered back to the upper room. Oh, they were defeated and discouraged. Their weaknesses had been revealed. Their boastful claims had been obliterated. They were embarrassed and ashamed. They were far from intact. They were just back. But apparently, that's all that really mattered to Jesus. The risen Lord Jesus is able to fix and forgive and to make us fit for his kingdom. He specializes in reclamation projects, even you and me. Our part is to simply come back, to trust him enough to step over our guilt and our failure and our condemnation and come back to him. We know this was the risen Christ's attitude toward his disciples when he walked right through the walls that barricaded the room. He came and he greeted them warmly. He didn't speak condemning words like, I told you so, or how could you, or I'm done with you. No, Jesus met them with uplifting and healing words. He walked right past a bolted door and shut windows, symbols of their doubts and fears, and he appeared in their midst saying, peace be with you. Since the disciples had faith enough to come back, Jesus came to them with peace. It was a new start. In fact, the disciples could barely believe what they had heard. I mean, perhaps that's why Jesus repeated himself. Notice in verse 21, he says a second time, peace to you. And notice the exclamation point. Jesus was the victim of their denial and their betrayal. And yet here, he is the one who's taking the initiative. He is the one who's working to persuade and convince the disciples of his love for them. And to complete their restoration, he goes beyond just acceptance. He lets these defeated disciples know that he still has a purpose for their lives. He adds in verse 21, 
As the Father has sent me, I also sent you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And can you imagine how that rang in Peter's ears? Peter denied Jesus thrice before the rooster crowed twice. I'm talking a triple-decker defeat, condemnation cubed. I'm sure the reason Peter went fishing after the resurrection, he has assumed that was his only option. After what he'd done, how could he ever be used of the Lord again? But while he fished, Jesus appeared to him. And on the beach, he recalled him to his service. And again, three times, it's interesting, the same number of times Peter denied Jesus, three times no less, Jesus reaffirmed his desire to use Peter once more. He told him, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Peter's restoration began with God's forgiveness, but it climaxed with the assurance that even after his colossal failure, he had not forfeited the possibility for him to serve. And that's what Jesus is wanting to say to all the disciples here in verse 21. Peace. You can be pardoned and peace again. You can still be productive. The pulpit commentary explains it this way. The first peace gave to all who were assembled a new revelation. The second peace, a summons to service. Hey, when these disciples staggered out of the shadows and returned to the upper room, they were broken and bleeding and barely hanging on to their frail faith. But when the risen Jesus appeared to them, they were instantly restored and recommissioned to service. Perhaps you too are a disciple of Jesus. And like the disciples on Resurrection Sunday, you're far from intact. You're still reeling from embarrassing defeats and shameful acts. But at least you've come back. Yet just being back is not where Jesus wants your story to end. Now that you're back, he desires to send you out. For even despite what you've done, you can still serve him. He still wants to use you. You see, Jesus takes shadow dwellers and spiritual failures, and he calls us to be the light of the world. He reignites a fire in our hearts to bring him glory. Yes, we're far from intact, but we've come back. And Jesus wants to use us. He wants to change us. The risen Lord wants to do a transformation in our lives. And this restoration gets summed up here in verse 22. Receive the Holy Spirit. Everything God does in us and through us is done by the person of the Holy Spirit. The Garden of Gethsemane was a total failure for the disciples. At first, remember, they were too lazy to pray with Jesus. They couldn't even pray for one hour. They fell asleep. Then they were afraid to stand with Jesus. Yet Jesus' answer to their lethargy and to their cowardice was the same. He overcame that laziness. He overcame that cowardice by giving them the Holy Spirit. You see, the gift of God's Spirit is indispensable to the believer. Ultimately, God's answer to all our weaknesses, to each of our shortcomings, is His Spirit. 
As one author put it, the Holy Spirit is in office on earth and all spiritual interaction with God comes through him. Over the next couple of weeks, I want to speak to you about the Holy Spirit. This morning, I want to explain why I am not afraid of the Holy Spirit and why you shouldn't be either. And then next week, I want to convince you that we all need the Holy Spirit, and I want to give you an opportunity to receive His power in your life. John 20, verses 20 and 22, 21 to 22, are truly marvelous words. They flow from the lips of our risen Lord Jesus to His defeated disciples. Jesus greets them with this marvelous peace, and then He imparts to them His Spirit, And John writes, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. When my son Nick was younger, I mentioned to him that he should go out for the wrestling team. Nick was very athletic and had a nice athletic build, had some quickness, some coordination, and I thought he would make a champion wrestler. Of course, Nick didn't like the idea. For when Nick thought of the sport of wrestling, all he could envision was fat guys in tights and sleeper holes and WrestleMania and the like. In his mind, he saw the fake and the phony and the hype and wanted no part of it. And with that as his model, I didn't blame him. Professional wrestling gives wrestling a bad rap. Wrestling is staged entertainment. It's showmanship, not substance. It's scripted outcomes, not competitive effort. To appreciate the sport of wrestling, I needed to take my son to a real high school or college wrestling match and let him witness a genuine wrestling event. And this is how some folks respond when they hear of the Holy Spirit. They've seen the sideshows and the abuses, the wrestling not the real wrestling. And in response, they've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. I believe most Christians want a deeper experience with God. They just don't want to go off the deep end. They need to receive the Holy Spirit, but because of ignorance or misconception or perhaps even fear, it keeps them from opening up to the Spirit. See, here's what happens. We correctly assume that the Holy Spirit wants to make us more holy and more spiritual. Then we see folks supposedly under the sway of the Spirit acting more carnal and less spiritual. Hey, I want to be godly, not goofy. I'm goofy enough as it is. People get turned off by the antics of folks who claim to be spiritual while acting very unspiritual. What's needed in churches today is a genuine outpouring of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you've watched Christian television, and you've seen the prima donna preachers prancing across the stage, blowing on people and slapping them in the forehead and all kinds of strange antics. These guys create a hyped-up, emotionally charged atmosphere And they play it to manipulate psychosomatic responses. And does God ever come to these rallies? At times he does, I'm sure. 
Hey, I believe that God can use anyone to minister to hurting people. God once used a donkey, if you remember. But when God's Spirit comes on the scene, you can be sure it's because of a believer's genuine faith, not because of some preacher's flamboyant antics. God is working more in spite of them than because of them. This is certainly not what happened between Jesus and his disciples that Sunday evening. Jesus doesn't woo his disciples into some kind of hyper-emotional trance. He doesn't play on heightened anticipations. I mean, these stunned disciples, they had felt dead inside for three days. They had no expectations. Now they can barely believe their eyes. This is not manipulation. This is true impartation. Remember in John 14, verse 17, on the night before he was crucified, Jesus had spoken to his disciples in the upper room of the Holy Spirit. He said, He dwells with you and will be in you. Up until this point, the Spirit had been by their side. But now that they believed on the risen Christ, now that they've met the requirements of salvation, the Holy Spirit now enters inside them and takes up residence in them. Though Jesus will leave them physically, he will forever be linked to his disciples spiritually. Jesus breathed on them and transmitted into them the Holy Spirit. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases John 20, verse 22. He says it this way, Then Jesus took a deep breath, and he breathed into them. Receive the Holy Spirit, he said. Hey, Jesus took a deep breath. He drew from deep within, and he gave them something of himself. There is no show or showmanship here. Jesus isn't puffed up with pride or full of hot air. This isn't a case of bad breath. No, Jesus takes something from deep within himself, and he puts it deep within his disciples. As the psalmist declares it, deep calls unto deep. Jesus is forming a heart connection with his men through the Holy Spirit. What happened in John 20 is similar to what God did at the original creation. Genesis 2 verse 7 tells us, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. God gave Adam the gift of life. He breathed it into him. God transmitted that life into him and put it, he, the life that was in God, and put it into man. And just as God transmitted physical life to Adam, here Jesus breathes and transmits spiritual life to his disciples. He breathes into them something of himself. Understand what happened in the upper room when the disciples came back that Sunday evening was not theatrics, it was theology. It was theology in the truest sense. It was the study of God through the experience of God. Here Jesus transmits his life, his nature, his love, his heart, as he told them his peace to his disciples. The person of the Holy Spirit embodies all that Jesus was and felt and taught and did. Here is the primary reason why I am not afraid of the Holy Spirit. 
For the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of our Lord Jesus. Everything Jesus began, he continued through the Holy Spirit. Philippians chapter 1, verse 19. Romans 8, verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11 goes as far as to say that the Holy Spirit, it refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Jesus, even as the Spirit of Christ. You see, when I receive more of the Holy Spirit, I am opening myself up to more of Jesus. If you're drawn to Jesus, his love and his forgiveness, if you thirst for his joy and his peace and his acceptance, if you find that his ways are winsome, if you're intrigued by his power, if you're in hot pursuit of Jesus Christ, then you want the Holy Spirit. For if you can trust in the ways and will of Jesus, then you can trust in the Holy Spirit. In John 14, verse 16, Jesus promised his disciples, I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth. Jesus guaranteed them another helper. There are two Greek words that get translated by the same English word, another. One word means another of a different kind. But the word that Jesus uses here is another of the same kind. The implication is that the Holy Spirit will be just like Jesus, that God's Spirit will help the disciples just as Jesus had helped his disciples. Jesus calmed their storms. He turned their water into wine. He healed their sicknesses. Jesus multiplied their meager loaves and fish. Jesus even said that he would make them fishers of men. Jesus did all that and more. And now Jesus tells his befuddled disciples that the Holy Spirit is about to take up where he had left off. Remember, the Son so closely reflected the Father in heaven that Jesus was able to say to Philip, He who has seen me has seen the Father. But likewise, the Holy Spirit so closely reflects Jesus that the Holy Spirit gets referred to as Christ in you, the hope of glory. Everything our Lord meant to his disciples, he wants the Holy Spirit to now mean to us. He expects us to depend on his Spirit, just as the disciples depended on him. A lot of people today are afraid of the Holy Spirit because they fail to see this connection between Jesus and his Spirit. They're attracted to Jesus in the Scriptures, but they're not so sure about this ever-present Spirit. I've experienced this firsthand. The Baptist church that I grew up in, it was a good church. The people feared God. The pastor preached Jesus. We all believed the Bible. Oh, but the Holy Spirit was taboo. Boy, the subject of the Holy Spirit was off limits. Our pastor wouldn't touch Acts chapter 2 with a 10-foot pole. He would waltz around the subject of the power of the Holy Spirit. He did more tippy-toeing than a ballerina. Yet in Luke chapter 11, verse 13, Jesus said of the Holy Spirit, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit who asked him? Notice Jesus called the Holy Spirit a good gift. Sadly, for a long time, I wasn't quite sure if the Holy Spirit was a good gift. 
One of my former church's problems was the name we used for the Holy Spirit. We read from the old King James Version, which referred to the Holy Spirit as the Holy Ghost. Or as it came across to me as a 12-year-old, the Holy Ghost. Some of those preachers would say it like that, the Holy Ghost. And right off the bat, that caused me a lot of confusion. You can imagine. To me, the term Holy Ghost sounded eerie and spooky and frightening. The best mental image I could conjure up for the Holy Ghost was Casper, the friendly ghost. I needed God's help, but you're haunted by a ghost. Though I was brought up a Baptist, as I got older, my curiosity exposed me to some Pentecostal churches that put much more emphasis on the Holy Spirit. But sadly, this only added to my already confused notions. Again, I love Jesus. He is the consummate servant. He is the only truly sane person to ever live on this planet. Jesus lived a winsome, beautiful life. Hey, Jesus is cool in every way. And when he saves people, he makes them cool like him. In Luke chapter 8, when Jesus cast the legion of demons out of the crazed demoniac, the Bible says that he was found in his right mind. But as I was being exposed to these charismatic circles, the stuff being done in the name of the Holy Ghost seemed odd and strange. It was as if the folks had lost their mind rather than be restored to their right mind. Remind me of the little girl who knelt down to pray one night at the end of a long day. She prayed. She says, I pray all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and, and, and. And she paused trying to remember who came next. Finally, she says, and that other guy who helps you out. Oh, yeah, the horsey spirit. Sadly, though, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, lots of people are horsing around. I'll tell you up front, I am a charismatic. I have been baptized by the Holy Spirit. I speak in tongues. I believe in supernatural gifts, and I want all of them God will give me. But I confess that a lot of what goes on today in the name of the Holy Ghost is just plain weird and worse. It's not biblical. There is no mention in the Scripture of the church blowing on each other or slaying folks in the Spirit or barking like a dog, or laughing uncontrollably, or gold dust filling the air, or dental fillings turning into gold. I go on and on and on. And when most people see these kinds of antics, it only adds to the skittishness that they feel toward the Holy Spirit. A.W. Tozer summarizes what's happened, the tragedy that's occurred. Satan has opposed the doctrine of the Spirit-filled life about as bitterly as any other doctrine there is. He has confused it and opposed it and surrounded it with false notions and fears. He has blocked every effort of the church of Christ to receive from the Father. He knows what he's doing. He knows how important the power of the Holy Spirit is in our lives. And that's why he's turned it into something weird and goofy and something that we wouldn't want, that we run from rather than run to. Friend, You don't need to fear the Holy Spirit. He is your best friend. If you've observed the fire of the Holy Spirit but have been reluctant to get too close for fear of getting burned, then you need to read 
seriously listen to Jesus in Luke chapter 11. This is the chapter where our Lord Jesus calls the Holy Spirit a good gift. In verses 11 through 13 of Luke 11, he asked his disciples three questions that have pretty obvious answers. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Of course not. Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? No way. Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? I mean, what kind of dad would do such a thing? And then Jesus draws his conclusion. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now notice the first of Jesus' three questions. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? A good dad would never give his nine-month-old a rock to chew on. The kid would break his teeth. Or the stone might get lodged in his throat and he choked to death. Hey, Jesus is telling us that the Holy Spirit is not a stone in your mouth. He's not something that's weird or out of place or tasteless or impossible for you to digest. I don't believe for a second that God's Spirit causes us to bark or wallow or flail away. Where, where in the world did Jesus behave this way? Of course not. These kind of antics don't mimic Jesus, and yet the, Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. A stone in your mouth isn't natural. It's an anomaly. It's out of place. Chances are it will do more harm than good. A stone is something that's tough to swallow, whereas the true manifestation of the Holy Spirit is sweet and tasty and always goes down smooth. Now notice the second of Jesus' questions. Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Imagine a kid asking for fish and instead getting a snake. Again, what kind of a father would be that cruel? In the early church, the fish was a symbol for Christianity. The Greek word fish is ichthus. The fish became a code name for genuine Christian faith. When the ichthus is treated as an acrostic, the letters stand for Jesus Christ, God, Son, Savior. You see, the fish symbol was drawn by two sweeping lines that started at a common point and crossed at the tail. So that in ancient times, when believers would meet each other on the beach or on the street, one would take a stick and he would draw one arched line. The second person would then grab the stick and he would then draw the opposite arched line so that together a fish was made. This was the symbol that they both were Christians. This fish was a symbol for Christianity and has been for millennia. Whereas from the Garden of Eden throughout the Scriptures, the serpent has always been a symbol of, of Satan. Growing up in a non-charismatic church, we were taught that by opening yourself up to the Holy Spirit, you might leave yourself vulnerable to evil spirits. Oh, you could get victimized by a demon. I can remember being told, oh, be careful about opening the door of your heart. 
and praying to be filled with the Holy Spirit and seeking these spiritual gifts. For if you open yourself up, an evil spirit can slip in and take up residence in your heart. You know, over the years as I've studied God's Word, I have concluded that that is one of the most blasphemous and wicked insults any person can hurl at our loving God. Are you kidding me? You think for a second that you would seek God and seek God's Spirit and God would allow the devil to take advantage of that? What kind of a father do you think he is? Here in our text, Jesus says, not even an evil father would give his son a serpent if he asked for a fish. And God is better than the best earthly dead. Jesus is assuring us that God will never allow a person with a pure heart, sincerely seeking a bona fide Christian experience to get hijacked by a demon. Never. And notice the third question that Jesus asks. Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? The egg is a proverbial symbol for new life. The scorpion, the sting of death. Again, it would be another knock on the loving nature of our Heavenly Father to think that He would allow one of His kids to seek after life or an egg and instead get the sting of a scorpion. What kind of a father do you think God is? When Jesus breathed on His disciples and said, Receive the Holy Spirit, remember they were out of breath. They had been running for days. They were gasping for air. They were suffocating under a cloud of doubt. Spiritually, they needed the oxygen of heaven. And now Jesus breathes on them, and he imparts his spirit, and by doing so, he fills them with new life. This experience put fresh wind back into the disciples' sagging sails. The Holy Spirit isn't a stone or a serpent or a scorpion that you should fear. No, he is the bread that satisfies our hunger. He is the fish that gets multiplied to meet our needs. He is the egg that is the beginning of new life. The Holy Spirit is a good gift. With these three questions in Luke 11, Jesus dispels our fears about the Holy Spirit. I used to have a t-shirt I wore for a number of years. My kids bought it for me. I think it was for Father's Day one year world's number one dad, but it wasn't true. For that t-shirt actually belongs to God. It's God who is the world's number one dad. Jesus gives good gifts to his kids, and he has reserved the best gift for his kids, the power of the Holy Spirit. Since the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus, then to know Jesus and walk with Jesus and experience the power of Jesus, you cannot be afraid of the Holy Spirit. Rather than run from Him, you should run to Him. This is why Jesus took a deep breath, and from inside Him to inside them, He imparted His nature. He said to His men, Receive the Holy Spirit. When we become Christians, we receive the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is talking about more than just a one-time reception. He's speaking of an attitude. On an ongoing basis, Jesus expects us to be receptive to the Holy Spirit. When I looked up this Greek word that gets translated receive, I found several definitions that illustrate the posture 
that we as Christians should have toward the Holy Spirit. Here's one. To lay hold of. Hey, we need to lay hold of the things of the Spirit. We need to embrace the Holy Spirit rather than shy away from spiritual things. Do you know anybody who does that? Oh, I'd rather not talk about that. Nah, nah, I just don't talk about that right now. I'm not, I'm not into that right now. No. Rather than shy away from spiritual things, we need to be open to and in hot pursuit of the Holy Spirit. Here's another definition of what it means to receive, to take in, to take in order to carry away. Our objective in receiving the Holy Spirit should be to carry Him and His influence with us into our everyday world. Here's another meaning, to claim for oneself. This suggests that we should cultivate a personal trust and intimacy with the Holy Spirit. As the disciples consider Jesus their closest friend, we should feel the same about the Holy Spirit. He should be our closest friend. Here's another definition. When that which is taken is not let go. Literally, to clutch on to. And rather than just a passing fancy, something we kind of dabble in here and there, Our relationship with the Holy Spirit should be a permanent pursuit. As Paul put it, we should live in the Spirit. And then the final definition of what it means to receive is to choose. To receive the Holy Spirit is to make a choice. Hey, am I going to depend on me and my resources, or am I going to live my life by drawing on my connection with the Holy Spirit? Will I receive the Holy Spirit. Now here's my purpose for this morning. I want us all to see the Holy Spirit as our ally, as our friend. Not something to be afraid of, but as our friend. The disciples were just back. Oh, they were far from intact. They were still hurting and bleeding and discouraged and defeated. But Jesus breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. This was his solution to their failure. Has life punched you in the gut? Has it knocked the breath out of you? If you're desperately in need of help this morning, Jesus says to you, receive the Holy Spirit. Fifty years ago, Christian singer Andre Crouch sang these words, Jesus is the answer for the world today. Above him there's no other. Jesus is the way. And his words are as true today as when they were first sung. No matter the question, God's ultimate answer to you is Jesus. But to know Jesus, to know him powerfully, to know him personally, you can't be afraid of his Holy Spirit. It is a true statement. He who does not know God, the Holy Spirit, does not know God at all. It's the Holy Spirit who puts back together our broken pieces. The work that Jesus started for us, the Holy Spirit now carries on in us. He is the one who makes us holy. You will never fulfill God's purpose for your Christian life unless you embrace and receive the Holy Spirit. It's been said, I need Jesus for my eternal life, whereas I need the Holy Spirit for my internal life. Like the disciples, you've come back to Jesus, and that's good. 
but for a broken heart and for a shattered life to become intact, you need to receive the Holy Spirit. Let me close with a story about the famous missionary to China, Hudson Taylor. He was on board a sailing ship bound for China when the boat lost its wind and began to drift perilously close to the cannibal islands. Well, the captain of the ship, he didn't want to be on the natives' menu that night, the fresh catch of the day at the cannibal cafe. And so he asked Hudson Taylor to pray for God to send a strong wind. Taylor said he would be happy to pray just as soon as the captain raised his sails. Why ask God for a wind if the captain had no faith? Of course, in the absence of a breeze, the captain thought it was foolish to hoist his sails. Why well, raise my sails without a wind? Well, the stalemate was finally broken when the stubborn captain hoisted his sails. That's when Hudson Taylor prayed, and God sent the wind. And the moral of the story is clear. Don't expect Jesus to breathe his Holy Spirit on you if you're not willing to be open and receptive to him. There is no reason for us to fear the Holy Spirit in our lives. He is our best friend. If we trust in Jesus, we can trust in his Spirit. Peace comes to restless disciples. Defeated disciples become useful again when Jesus breathes on his followers and says to them, Receive the Holy Spirit, and they obey.